0: Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, hey, I don't know if we have any Lord of the Rings fans with us this morning, but um, there's a scene in the first movie. Yeah, really? Cool. Uh, there's a scene in Fellowship of the Rings where um, it and it. Where, where Frodo and Gandalf are having this conversation. It really reminds me of this passage. So they're having this conversation about the this ring that has been in Frodo's possession for a number of years. And he doesn't realize what it actually is until Gandalf uh, shows him and tells him, like, this is actually the ring of power that belonged to the Dark Lord Sauron. And um, it has the power to control uh, everybody and everything in Middle-earth like it has the power to remake middle earth exactly the way that you want it to be. And so Frodo realizes how dangerous this thing is and um and he he offers it to Gandalf because he's like, well surely Gandalf can be treat, can be trusted with this ring. Of, of if anybody could be trusted with this kind of power, surely Gandalf the gray, this good and faithful wizard could be trusted with it. And Gandalf when he's offered the ring and he's tempted with it, he turns it down. Do you remember that? So Frodo's like, you have to take it, I'm, I'm offering it to you, I'm giving you this ring for free, I, I, you, need to, you need to take it. And Gandalf says, um, don't tempt me, Frodo. He says, I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe. Understand, I would use this ring from a desire to do good, but through me it would wield a power too great and terrible to imagine." And I just think it's really important and, and and interesting there, like not even Gandalf the Grey can be trusted with this ultimate power. And I actually have uh, a replica. It's a gold ring that's engraved and it was given to me by a friend. And every time I look at this ring, I remember how power works. Like if Gandalf couldn't be, of course uh, I couldn't. And and it seems to me that's pretty close to the message of this third temptation. Now we're this morning wrapping up this three-week um, study of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. It's, we've, been, we've called it tempted, how Jesus delivers us from evil. Uh, we've been seeing what happens when the devil comes to Jesus and tempts him with provision and protection and now power. And, and these are all good things that the devil offers to Jesus. And that's the thing about temptation. And, and that's why I really agree with um, a theologian named Brian Zond, who says, Satan never tempted Jesus with evil. Satan tempted Jesus with good. Satan enticed Jesus to go ahead and to do good and to bring it about by the most direct way possible. And so as we've been going along, we saw that in the first temptation, he offered the devil offered Jesus a way to be satisfied apart from God. Just prove yourself. And Jesus said, like, no, more, more than I need uh, food, I need to trust God's word. And last week in the second temptation, we saw that Satan offers Jesus a way to become satisfied famous, and to prove himself to the world. He just needed to take a leap of faith. And Jesus said, no, 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 that I, I'm not going to put God to the test. And then today, this this morning, we're looking at what might be the ultimate temptation for the church, but maybe the one that we need to pay the most attention to of all. Um, it's the It's where Satan offers Jesus a short and easy path to power, to ultimate power. The question we're really dealing with this morning is like, For all of us, like, what would you do if you could have everything you ever wanted? Does the end justify the means? And and we're going to come to the answer to that, I think, as we look at this passage in terms of what it shows us about power, in terms of what it shows us about the kingdom, about God's timing, and about us. And so to begin, I want to see what this passage shows us about power. So because it begins, the devil took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. Okay, all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he says, all this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Now, it's worth remembering that the devil has the authority to make this offer. Paul, the apostle, calls him the God of this age. Okay, and so this is an offer you'd think that, that Jesus can't refuse. All the nations and all their glory and all their splendor—it now, if if he says yes, it now belongs to Jesus. He literally can rule the world. Okay, he can have his kingdom. All he has to do is bow down and worship the devil. And I want to think about this in, in terms of what. What if he does? Okay, what does what does yes mean in this situation? If he does, the whole world becomes a Christian empire. And Jesus is its emperor, okay? There's no unbelief anymore. The whole world becomes Christian. We're no longer disciples of Jesus. We are now his loyal subjects. Could could you imagine that? I mean, it's actually a pretty good scene. Because with Jesus, there's no more war. There is no more violence. There's no hunger and and poverty. There's no more greed. Now there there is one culture Okay? There's one Christian culture. It's all about him. Now there, all art is Christian too. Under the rule of Jesus, there is no other better world for us to long for. And so all art and music and television and film, it's all about Jesus. It's all Christian stuff. And so if Jesus says yes, he has Christianized the world and it is now on earth as it is in heaven and not a drop of blood had to be spilled for that to happen not his, and nobody, and not anybody else's. And uh, Russell Moore reflects on this. He says, um, Satan offers Jesus kingdoms that even at that moment are filled with infants dying of malaria, rows and rows of crosses from the Roman Empire. It instantly ends if Jesus has the authority in a moment to do exactly as he pleases with the kingdoms of the world. No Nero emerges no black plague, no hitler, no holocaust. It's not simply a Christian America, it's a Christian cosmos. It's a it's a world over which he has instant authority and Satan says, "I will give it all to you now." That's what happens if Jesus says yes. Now, I want to think about what is it what happens if Jesus says no to this temptation. If he says no, Jesus will still be king but not for not for quite some time. He has to wait on God. And over the course of his ministry, Jesus is going to be attacked by Pharisees, and he's going to be homeless and penniless, and he's going to be rejected in his hometown, and he's going to spend three years training apostles who a lot of the time just aren't going to get it. And uh, one of them is going to betray him, and all of them are going to eventually abandon him, and he will eventually suffer uh, an awful and an agonizing death. And Jesus, he, if he says no, he still will become Lord of Earth. But it's going to take a resurrection for that to happen. And so Satan offers Jesus what he offers us. You can skip all of that. You can have the world exactly the way you want it. It's a shortcut to like the best possible world as you can imagine it. And, and it's a shortcut to everything being exactly the way that we think it should be And that's why power tempts us. Because power isn't evil in itself. Power is just the ability to do what we think needs to happen. Power is the ability to make things right, at least as as we uh, understand it. So that's the thing about power. Now let's see what this shows us about the kingdom. About the kingdom. Because as the passage goes on, Jesus says to him, uh, Away from me, Satan get out of here, like, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he finally says, get lost. We need to realize what, like, what's at stake in this, in this temptation, because Jesus is the true son of God, okay? This is why he came. This is his birthright. Ruling the earth is his birthright, and, and the prophets had said about Messiah when he would come that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And listen to this and the government will be on his shoulders, Isaiah said. And remember, the scripture promises that someday every knee will bow uh, on earth, in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's Jesus' destiny, but not like this, okay? Like, this isn't how that's supposed to happen. And in some ways, it's such a small thing, right? Like, he can Christianize the world. Instantly, he can make all the bad stuff go away if if all he takes is 10 seconds to bow down and say to Satan, fine, I accept your offer, you win. And then suppose he does. Suppose he, like... Right after he says yes, and then he's in charge of the world, then maybe he just builds a great big wall and, in order to, to keep the devil out. He could do that. Like, wouldn't it, you, you know, wouldn't it be worth it? Doesn't the end justify the means? It doesn't. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is because the starting point for God's people is that uh, God, only God deserves to be on the throne of our lives. Only he deserves our worship. That's why Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 here. We don't worship anybody else in God's place. Jesus will not sin. He will not offer the devil the worship that only God deserves. He won't do that. Not even, to, not even uh to fix the world. But second, because Jesus knows the end doesn't justify the means. Because yes, if he's if he goes for it, yeah, the world would be his, but he would owe it all to Satan. He would owe his victory to the devil. Satan, not his father, would have answered his prayer. It's Satan and not his father who's responsible for spreading his kingdom across the earth. And even if nobody else in the world knew it, Jesus would know that the real source of his victory was not his father, but Satan. All right? Everything else would seem fine. There would be peace and and nobody in the world would have any idea that this happened. Everybody would think Jesus, uh, our emperor, has has done it and he, this, the world is amazing. But Jesus would know that he had made a, a deal with the devil. And in that sense, it, were, it really wouldn't be his kingdom after all. It would be the devil's kingdom. And that's why Jesus says no to this temptation. That's why he says no to this temptation. This isn't, this isn't the kind of kingdom that Jesus means to bring. That's what we need to see about the kingdom. Now I want us to see what this passage, what this temptation shows us about God's timing. Because I wouldn't want to ha- overlook how the story ends here. Um, the devil let, leaves him in verse 11, and angels came and attended him. The word translates here, it literally means that they served him. They they like waited on him like deacons in some way in, in the book of Acts. They, um, they're they looking after Jesus' needs, Okay. And, and you might wonder, like, how long did it take for this to happen? Did, it, did they leave, like, right after Satan left? Was it an hour? Was it 10 minutes? Was it instantly? We don't know. But it, this definitely makes me realize how important it is to keep fighting temptation and not give in, like, to persevere as I'm fighting temptation. Because it, it, it makes me wonder, like, how often, when I've been tempted, how often have I quit before I learned what it looked like to trust God in that situation? You know, like, what if I had held on just a little bit longer, and like, maybe I would have seen angels. What if God had been right about to attend to me, but I couldn't wait, and I gave, that's when I gave in to temptation? And I think God's timing here matters. Like, in our lives, when you and I are tempted, angels almost certainly aren't going to arrive until after Satan is done making his pitch, and we're considering it, Okay? They're going to arrive. The angels, if they're going to arrive, they're going to come after the devil has made his pitch and not a minute sooner. Otherwise, it's not a test, right? If angels are going to be there right away to bail us out, we don't need to learn faithfulness. We don't need to learn trust and we don't need to learn perseverance and obedience because like, ta-da, there's angels here. And so God's help in, in Jesus' life, his timing there and his help in our lives, it is perfectly timed. There's one more thing to see it, and, and it's what this temptation shows us about us. It's what it shows us about us and I think that I just I think that there's a warning in here for us as individuals, as families, as a church. I think there's a warning for us because some Christians would take this deal. In fact, I think that through our history, Christian history shows that sometimes Christians have made this deal. Let me give you a couple examples geneva fifteen fifty three a man named Michael Servetus. He's burned at the stake in the city of Geneva. He had been arguing with a a theologian named John Calvin over the nature of the Trinity. Many of you would have heard of John Calvin or or Calvinism and things. In those days, the church and the government are the same group. In fact, the city of Geneva is, is led. The government consists of a bunch of pastors and elders. The police in Geneva, they would investigate households that are suspected of sinning. They would look from house to house for evidence of sin. And so this Michael Servetus, he's got some different ideas about the Trinity. And the the city council asks Calvin, what do we do with this guy? What do we do with Servetus? And Calvin says, he must die. Now, just to be clear, I agree 100% that Michael Servetus was wrong. But this is not the way to treat heretics. But this is the third temptation. This is the third temptation. You can have the world exactly as you want it. You can have a Christian Geneva if you burn those who don't fit in. The end justifies the means. And, And so maybe today we hear that story. Well, that was 1553. How silly. Those silly Genevans in 1553. How foolish. We would never fall for that. Except two weeks ago, In Washington, we watched as thousands of Americans, many of them Christians, marched on the Washington Capitol. And it started with prayer, and it started with crosses and hymns, and some of them called this a march on Jericho. And in some ways, we're only now learning how violent this thing would have been. It was awful. Five people died, and there was, it was massive violence and, and unrest and insurrection. But if these people had had their way, they would have executed the vice president and many, many others, and they would have tried to overturn the U.S. election. Now, to be clear, I, I know that not everybody in that crowd that day was a Christian, I also know that not every Christian in the crowd there was violent. I I know that. But everybody in the crowd, Christian or non, they all agreed that America should be a Christian nation. That America needs to be a Christian nation. And again, this is the third temptation. It's you can have the world exactly the way you want it. You can have a Christian America. You just need to be willing to violently overthrow the left and resist them. Because in this temptation, the end justifies the means. And and maybe some of us are like, well, that's America. None of us would fall for that. We we those those silly Americans, right? Except you know what? Recently, a handful of Christians in Canada and their churches, many people that you and I would know, people who are we're we, friends, have been making headlines because they are refusing to cap their in-person worship services and they're refusing to wear masks because as they say it violates their rights. Now, I get it. Like I miss seeing you guys in person. I miss seeing my neighbors and my family in person. I get it that masks are irritating, but again, this is the third temptation. It's you can have the you can have Canada exactly as you want it. You can have all the freedom of religion that you want if you agree to spread conspiracy theories mock the people that you disagree with on social media and risk uh, infecting each other with covid the end it seems we think justifies the means and we could go on and on and on but i'll just share this when we started this church a few years ago we faced this temptation because we knew that you can grow a church fast and large by teaching less than the Bible. And you can grow a church by teaching more than the Bible. And we knew that there were all kinds of prominent, powerful, influential, famous leaders who had done both. And in the last couple of years, though, it seems to me, it just seems like things are changing. Maybe, I could be wrong, but it seems like the ground is shifting a little bit. Because a lot of these guys who we have looked up to as heroes over the years have also have been it turns out have become we've been finding out that they're guilty of some pretty serious like abuses abuses and corruption and moral failures people whose names you would know okay and and sometimes sometimes we heard about the accusations over the years and we just we didn't believe it like we just we refused to believe it but sometimes sometimes i think we heard these stories and we believed it we believed that it was possible and it was probably true, but we gave them a pass because that's how a Christian empire works. That's just, that's, that's how it works. Again, it's the third temptation. You can have a huge church. You can have a, an influential public ministry. You just need to be willing. You can have a massive flock. You just need to be willing to sacrifice a few of your sheep along the way. The end justifies the means. Now, it, again, it feels like this this is changing. It could just maybe it's just me, but it does it does feel like there is less and less tolerance for that, and we're realizing that maybe the ends don't justify the means after all, and that's the problem with power that we need to face if we're going to learn from this temptation. Okay, the Christian is the person for whom the end doesn't justify the means the christian is the person for whom the how and the why matters just as much as the what okay like it's it's like gandalf in the ring he gandalf would have taken the ring and used it in order to do good and it, through him it would have done incredible destruction you know i i look at the people who are on this zoom call right now and some of my favorite people in the world are here i i love each and every one of you, deeply. And I know that there is not a single one of you who could be trusted with this kind of power. Not a single one of us could be trusted with this kind of power. The only one who could be trusted with this kind of power was Jesus, and he turned it down. And Jesus makes us a promise. He says, Friends, seek my kingdom, and these things, all these things that you want, they'll be given to you as well. So don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Like, Jesus knows someday it will be on earth as it is in heaven. He's promised us that. He's promised us that his kingdom, we're going to share this kingdom with him. But it's not going to come by violence. It's not going to come by oppression or deceit or by legislation or by greed or by worshiping Satan in God's place. This kingdom comes by a death and a resurrection, okay? There is is no kingdom without a cross. There is no new life without resurrection. And I really believe if we we internalize this, then I'm persuaded that 2021 can be a life-changing year for us as, again, as individuals, as families, and as a church. And it'll happen whether we're in lockdown or not. Now, just a couple of things to take with us as we as we uh, begin to wrap up. I hope that this translates into how we love each other and our neighbors. okay? Like we are on we're on mission. We're on mission to, to love and to serve our neighbors, to invite them to follow the way of Jesus. but um, but nobody is going to believe that we love them if all that they hear from us are complaints about how our rights are being trampled and how everybody else seems to get all the cool opportunities, how everybody else seems to have all the bread. Like, you don't need to be a Christian to know that love is patient and love is kind and love bears all things and love seeks not its own. And what concerns me about this moment that we find ourselves in is that Jesus asks us to carry a cross and there are many Christians who aren't even willing to wear a mask. If we can't lay down our rights for other people, they will never believe that we're willing to lay down our lives for them. Let me say that again. If we we can't lay our rights down for others, they will never believe that we would lay down our lives for them. Okay, if we were if we refuse to be inconvenienced for our neighbors for the sake of love, nobody's gonna believe that we want God's kingdom to come to come. They're gonna think we like this kingdom just fine, actually, the way that it is. And so I'm I'm just am pleading with us, let this let this study of the, these three temptations, let it drive us to love others, to love each other and to love our neighbors in hard, costly, Christ-like ways. And the last thing is this. I hope that this will, this will drive us to place our trust more fully in God. Here's what I mean. When, when we're tempted, we are being offered the good things that God wants for us apart from God. You get that? We're offering being offered the good things that we want, even the good things that God wants for us, apart from God. And we often fall for it because God's way is slow and the devil's way is fast. And God's way is hard and the devil's way is easy, and God's way is costly, and the devil's way is cheap. And what we know now, after studying these temptations, is, is that God's way is better. It's better. And we have we actually now realize we have no need for a God who gives us exactly what we want when we want it. A God who who always turns the stones into bread for us. That's not who we need. A God who catches us every, each and every single time we fall. That, that's not the God we need. A, a, and a God who makes all of our dreams come true, that is not the God that we need. The truth is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows exactly what you and I need in order to flourish in this world and in the next. And when we cry out to this God, his answer to us might be, yes, yes. Absolutely. But his answer might be no, or it might be not yet. Because, like any good parent, God gives us what we need. God gives us exactly what we would ask Him for if we could see our lives the way that He does. And that doesn't prove that we can't trust God. It doesn't prove that we can't trust God to come through for us. It proves that we can. And it seems to me that's just a really important idea for us to catch. At the start uh, of a new year. Amen? So let's pray together. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.